Jesus said, and you have to say it with the right inflection. You can't just say, Jesus said what? You have to say it with the, Jesus said what? But as you consider the words of Jesus in the Bible, we recognize that there's a number of passages in the Bible where we look at them and go, what is Jesus talking about there? What does he mean by that? And a natural way of responding anytime we come across something difficult or something that we just go, I don't understand that. The natural response is we skip over that and let's go to the words that I can actually pronounce. Let's go to something that I'm already doing really well and focus upon that. But we believe the Bible is God's inspired word for you and for me. And therefore, if God's word is inspired by him and it's for you and I, we better pay attention. And we better start asking the question, God, what are you teaching us here? What do you want us to know? And we've been building on this the last several weeks. And and this week we're looking at John chapter number six. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John six. We're going to be there almost exclusively today, and we're going to read through that passage together, and we're going to tell the story of what Jesus is doing and make some application from our our lives. So the verse for today is a verse that Jesus literally says, eat me. And you may go, what? I know. That's why I chose it. John chapter 6, verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And you read that, you go, Is Jesus telling me to be a cannibal? Is Jesus telling me to be a vampire? Now, it's very popular because like half of the movies on TV now are vampire movies. It's very popular. So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Oh, what is he really meaning here? Because we see cute little chubby babies, especially the chubby ones. And you say, I could just eat you up. But what is Jesus actually meaning in this passage? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through and look at the context of the entire chapter. We're not going to read every verse. We're going to give you the background of what's taking place. Because real people 2,000 years ago in Israel, right beside the Sea of Galilee, had a conversation with Jesus. And they had a choice of how they were going to respond. They were confronted with truth. And some of them said, no, thank you, and turned away and stopped following Jesus at all. For others, it built their faith and it showed and brought to light what they actually believed. And they made great statements of belief as a result. Our principle for today is this. And every Sunday we have a principle that we seek to apply to our life. And it is Jesus always tells me the truth. And I was going to leave it there. And as I was mulling that principle over, I realized he doesn't just tell me the truth. He tells me the truth that I need to hear. He tells us the truth that you need to hear when you need to hear it. How do we respond when the creator of the universe shares truth with us? Are we dismissive or are we accepting of it? And does it change our lives? In John chapter number 6, to give you a little bit of background on what's taking place in this passage, we see Jesus on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. If you have a Bible, like a paper Bible with you today, you probably have in the back of your Bible, you probably have maps. 
And if you look at the maps, you'll see Israel during the times of Jesus. They probably have that map. And in the north side of Israel, you'll see a little lake they call the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was teaching on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And to give you a little bit of, of, of a picture, if you can imagine what it looks like, the Sea of Galilee, like the day that I visited earlier this year, it was beautiful and flat and smooth. And surrounding all the way around are large hills, particularly on the east side. It's very hilly. And if you're down on the water's edge, you can see how clouds come up very quickly. And Jesus was on the east side, and he was surrounded by huge crowds. In fact, this is the passage of, of the scripture that is recorded in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record what takes place here. And have you ever heard of Jesus feeding the 5,000? That's John chapter 6. And people are seeing the miracles of Jesus. He's healing. He's teaching. And they're getting hungry. And rather than sending the people away to go home, Jesus performs an incredible miracle and feeds the people. And as a result of that, it made the people really excited. I mean, typical. You feed people, they will follow you. And it says in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is feeding the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So to put that in perspective, they were on the seashore there, and Jesus goes up into the hills, up into the mountains, and spends some time alone with God. His disciples, in the meantime, they start out heading back. They're fishermen. Peter and James and John, their hometown is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a city called Capernaum. And you can see that on the map, it's just up at the top western corner. They start going across and they're rowing their boats. They're rowing their boats. And because of the way that the, uh, the Sea of Galilee is in a, a low part and the mountains are all around, a storm came up very suddenly. And the way it was described to me as we were there was, if you imagine like, the, the ocean here. We have the <coughs> Geograph Bay. On a nice day, it is so smooth. It is absolutely beautiful. And then we see it on a stormy day. The waves are all up. And that's what they describe here, the Sea of Galilee. They say they can get three or four meter tall waves going through. And you imagine these men rowing all night long. And that passage it describes these burly 12 men thinking that they saw a ghost. Now, I think there's a bit of humor here because these men who were brave saw Jesus coming along the water, walking on the water. You've heard the miracle of Jesus walking on the water? That's this passage. And the book of Matthew records Peter asking Jesus, can I walk on the water also? The book of Matthew records Peter walking on the water with Jesus. These are incredible miracles. And, of course, they begin with, they thought Jesus was a ghost walking along in the water. So this passage has it all. This passage has ghosts, it has cannibalism, and vampires in this. Right after that, the, the scripture says they were at Capernaum. They arrived safely the next morning. Then Jesus begins to teach. The people that are on the far side of the water, they 
wake up in the morning, they look around, Jesus is gone, the disciples are gone, they don't know where he went, and they start looking for him, and they start heading out themselves back towards Capernaum. I'm sure some of them walked, but many of them took ships back. And they arrive back in Capernaum, and they come upon Jesus. And what we're going to focus on today are four different questions that they ask Jesus, and Jesus responds to them. And any time we come and we're confronted with truth, we have a choice of how we're going to respond. For some of the people, as it says in verse 66, some of the people heard the truth and they go, no, thank you. We're not going to follow you anymore. And this isn't talking about the 12 disciples. This is just talking about people that were followers. And verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. One day, they were going to make him king. And 24 hours later, they were turning their back and saying, we're not going to follow him anymore. These four questions we, that we're asking for today are this. When, what, who, and how? And the reason why I give them to you like that is because when you see them, and over lunch, you can talk about, what did you learn in the message today? What did you learn about? I always ask my kids, when we sit at lunch, like when they were in, in kids' church, what did you learn in kids' church? And then I force my children to tell me what I talked about. <laughs> like, did you pay attention? So for you, it's, it, you can say, when, what, who, how. Okay? So if you can say that fast, you know, when, what, who, how, and you can say, that's what we look, talked about in church today. So let's delve into John chapter number 6 and look, let's look at these questions they're asking. So the first one is when. And it's a very legitimate question they're asking. They're asking, when did you get here? Because they were traveling along and they were looking for Jesus. And it says in verse 25 that they were asking him the question. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now they're thinking short term. They're thinking physical, where Jesus is thinking long term and he's thinking spiritual. He's thinking eternity and salvation by grace through faith and eternity, whereas the people are thinking, where's my next meal going to come from? I'm kind of getting hungry now. And so they're thinking only the next meal where Jesus is talking spiritual. And that's where we get a lot of confusion in this passage. Because what we can naturally do as individuals, and I think we all are guilty of this, we think short term when God wants us to think long term. We think, what's my next meal? And God's talking about where are you going to spend eternity? And so that's the discourse that takes place here. And it goes on in verse 25. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he gives them a challenge. Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't think short term. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You see, the people in Israel at that time, were underneath Roman rule. And underneath Roman rule, the Roman Empire was the world superpower of the day. And one of the things that they did is that they would socially engineer people. What they would do is they would take people and they would feed them and they would give them games. 
you, you've seen the Colosseum. You've seen pictures of that. And you've seen what takes place in the Colosseum with people you know, fighting and, and the games. And, and you can imagine, there's actually there's 93 days a year that were set aside by the Roman Empire for holidays and food and for the games. And you imagine how, in a sense, in, in a negative way, how clever that was. Because it's a lot easier to give people food and a lot easier to entertain people than it is to fight against them and to put them in jail. So they were thinking to themselves, if we feed you and entertain you, you'll follow us anywhere. And that was what's working in the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what the mindset of these people were. Feed me and I'll follow you anywhere. Entertain me. Show me another sign. Show me another miracle. Tell me something new that I've never heard before. In other words, entertain me and we'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus is turning the table on that and he's saying, I want you to think spiritually. See, we naturally, and this is totally natural human nature, we turn to God when we have a need. If you're suffering from a physical ailment, we turn to God and say, God, heal me. Or we're going through a time of difficulty and say, God, provide for me. Whatever it is, a job or money or, or pay the bills. There's difficulty in your family relationship and you come to God and say, God, give me peace in this world. And none of those things are bad things to pray for. But if you're only coming to God and saying, God, heal me, that's the only conversation you're having. He wants you to turn the table and think rather than short term, think long term. If, he's just, if you're just coming to God and saying, God, give me peace in this situation. He's thinking long term, not just short term. We should absolutely be praying for God to, to provide for us. We should be asking him in everything of our lives. But that's not the only thing. He wants a relationship with us. The names of God def- describe the nature of God. And one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, which means healer. And Jehovah Jireh, which means provider. And Jehovah Shalom, which means peace. And we see those attributes of God. We see him as a provider. We see him as a healer. We see him as the giver of peace. But do you see Jesus Christ as Savior? Because if we are just coming to God and saying, God, heal me, provide for me. It's no different than asking a genie and rubbing the genie bottle and asking for three wishes. The correct view of of Jesus Christ is to accept him as our savior, repent of our sin and accept him as our savior. And Jesus says that we need him every step of the way, not just when we go through difficult circumstances. So the first question was, when did you get here? The second question is what? The second question is what? What must we do? Now, remember, the people are still thinking short term. They're thinking, feed me now. And if you can put yourself in that perspective uh, of thinking, I'm hungry right now. Please, you probably all, that's all you're thinking. Like, hurry up, Michael, I'm hungry. And you start thinking short term. The scones are out there. They're coming. You're only thinking short term. And what do you think about the more you dwell on it? If you've ever really, really been thirsty, like really thirsty, or if you've ever been a teenage boy, you understand what it means to be almost dying. As a teenage boy, you come home from school, you're dying because you're starving so much. Then after you eat dinner, five minutes later, you're dying because you're so hungry again. 
this people are thinking short term. And Jesus is turning the tables again and thinking, let's talk long term. And they asked the question in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? What you believe matters. What you believe about the physical and the spiritual. But Jesus puts them in order. He basically is saying, let's stop talking physical. Let's talk spiritual. In verse 29, it continues and says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. So he's telling them, this is what you need to do. Believe in him whom he has sent. Now you imagine Jesus in this conversation. He's saying, believe in him who he has sent. He's pointing at himself. Believe in me. Believe what I am telling you. We naturally have a response when we're confronted with something that we don't necessarily like by asking questions. And we naturally ask questions like, why? And then we give it an answer, and then we ask, why again? Now, if you ask an inf- like a really young child, it's kind of cute when your little daughter says, why? And you tell them, why? But then when you tell them the 18th time, why? You just say, just do what I told you to do. These crowds... They're processing that. They're coming across and they're literally saying, Jesus says, believe in me. And they're starting to question, why? And it sounds really intelligent. And we can defer our responsibility of obedience upon questioning, well, unless I know everything about everything and everything about God and what the future is going to hold completely, then I, 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 I can't move forward. And in the reality is all we're called to do is believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Is Jesus Christ who he says he is? Did Jesus Christ do what he said he was going to do? It's, a very, it's human nature. The Apostle Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And talks about seeking a sign and also seeking wisdom. And something you'll find, if you're always looking for a sign, you're never going to be satisfied. If you're always looking after wisdom, you're never going to be satisfied because there's always something else that you don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, Jesus is pointing at himself saying, believe in me. And the people come along and respond in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Literally what they're saying there is, you fed us yesterday, but I'm hungry today. What have you done for me lately? Can you imagine? I mean, one of your children, if, you're, if you have children here today, and your kids say, what have you done for me lately, mom or dad? When was the last time you fed me? It's been five hours already. You obviously don't love me. And that's really what they're saying there. They're saying there, God, when our forefathers were in the wilderness, they didn't just feed, he didn't just feed us one time. In fact, for 40 years, they were given manna. 
Now, manna was something, was a particular time period for 40 years while the nation of Israel was in the wilderness. God provided for them in miraculous ways. Their shoes and clothes never wore out. They were provided with water. They were provided with protection. They were provided with food every single day. And it came in the form of a, a thin wave. And the scripture describes it as a thin wafer that they were collecting, gathered together. And the name they called it is manna. And the name manna literally means, what is it? Now, this is just my imagination. This is Michael talking here. You imagine the first guy that walks out of his tent on that first morning, and he comes out and he sees this manna, or what is it, all over the ground. And he gathers it together and he literally says, what is it? And other people go, I don't know. What is it? And the name manna just stuck. And so you be careful what you name things because they end up being stuck after all eternity. They call it manna. God provided for them every single day and every provision that they needed for 40 years. And when they entered into the promised land, that day it stopped. And these people are saying, but Jesus, you only fed us one time. What have you done for me lately? And you start mulling that response over. It it's a, sounds really intelligent, but in reality, what the people are saying here is, I will not believe in you unless my life is absolutely perfect. I'm not going to believe in you unless everything is always provided for me. No one could ever get sick. No one's ever going to be hungry. No one's ever going to be thirsty. My bills are all going to be paid. And God, once you provide absolutely everything for me, then I will choose to believe you. And we understand human nature. That's never going to happen. So the response from that is verse 33. This is Jesus talking. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's calling him the bread of life. He's pointing at himself. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We never want to be hungry. They're thinking physical. Jesus is talking spiritual. It goes on in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And there's some promises that he makes here. And he makes some exclusive statements. Either Jesus is absolutely crazy and he's making some statements that he can't, that he can't keep or promises he can't keep, or he really is God and he really is the Savior. He really is the bread of life because he makes some exclusive promises. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I've known Christ as my Savior since I was a young child and physically I have got hungry. And physically, I get thirsty. So we're not talking physical here. We're talking spiritual. And you know something beautiful about this promise? He begins with the word whoever. Whoever comes and believes. That whoever is you and me. That is whoever comes and believes will receive the salvation. That isn't a prerequisite to saying you need to be good enough or smart enough or strong enough. You need to have enough in your bank account. You need to look a certain way or act a certain way. It's a whoever, and the whoever includes you. And it moves on from that, and it says, shall not and never. That is, you're never going to be hungry. You're never going to be spiritually thirsty. You know how liberating that is? And what that means, some application from that, if you know Christ is your Savior, you've never been more or less full of your salvation. From the moment of salvation, you've always been 100% full. 
You know how liberating that is? So you're not half saved or three quarters saved or 99% saved if you're really, really good. You've always been 100% saved because he's the one doing the saving, not you. He's the one doing the filling of the hunger and the thirst, not you. You know how liberating that is because in our natural mindset, we think to ourselves, but I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I did wrong again. Your salvation is secure because he's the one holding on. Do we do good things afterwards? Do we grow closer to him as a result? That's not the same as salvation. That's our relationship with God as we continue on. And should you give, should you serve, should you learn more, should you read your Bible, should you pray? Absolutely. Should we witness to other people? 100% we should do all those things, but that's not the same as salvation. That's because of my salvation, therefore I serve. Not to earn my salvation. And once we understand that, we are liberated from the, the burden of keeping our salvation. It goes on. The third question. Who? Who are you? Now, Jesus has made some pretty exclusive statements here. He's pointing at himself and saying, I'm the bread of life. And people are going, I, actually, I know who you are. And they're literally saying, I know your parents. If you imagine there's some lady going, I know your mother. I remember you when you were just a baby. I changed your nappy. That's literally what they're saying here. And it says in verse Number 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because they, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Now, we know where you're from. Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth. And the map, if you look at the, uh, the map of Israel, you'll see Today, there's a modern highway that goes through there, and it's not straight. It's 49 kilometers, but it's up and down mountains and around a couple of big roundabouts as you go. And distance-wise, if you follow that route, it's literally like here to Bustleton. It's 49 kilometers away. But it was just down the road. These people would have connected. They, they, people would have known where Jesus was from. They would have known his mom and dad. I know Joseph. I know Mary. How could you possibly be from heaven? And they're asking more and more questions, trying to defer their responsibility because they're thinking physical, where Jesus is talking spiritual. And it goes on. And we have an excuse. We can often have excuses because of our past. We have excuses because of what we have done in the past or what we've not done. And there's Seemingly really good excuses. I say that with a bit of, of um, tongue-in-cheek. We have really good excuses why we, we can't do what God has called us to do. It takes so much pressure off of us as we continue reading in verses 43 through 45. It says, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. That takes all the pressure off of you and I to be good enough, to be smart enough. All we're called to do is to lead people to be taught by God. That's why when we pray for someone to be saved, 
We pray for their salvation. In faith, we pray that they'll come to know Christ. We're asking God, God, will you teach them what is true? We're not the one doing the saving. All we're doing is guiding that person to be taught by God. You see, all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are actively involved in your salvation. God is doing the loving. The Holy Spirit is doing the calling and the convicting. And Jesus Christ is doing the saving through his death on the cross. All three members are actively involved in your salvation. Always asking us, when he says, who? He says, who are you to tell us? And he turns it around and says, this is an act of God. This isn't a human act. This is a God act. And then finally, the people ask, how? How could this possibly be? How can you do what you say you are doing? And it goes on in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Once again, they're thinking physical. And they're probably thinking, that's gross. He wants to eat him? That's disgusting. And I think they're just being obstinate here. Because Jesus is being clear spiritual 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 and they're still thinking no 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 we can't eat him that's gross and he goes on in verse 53 so jesus said to them truly truly i say to you and now he's talking spiritual unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A very simple definition of that is given to us, to us by a Bible commentator named Warren Wearsby, and he says this, Just as you take food and drink within your body, and it becomes part of you, so you must receive me within your innermost being so that I can give you life. Now, as a simple reading of that passage, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you may think, well, Jesus is talking about communion. I don't believe he's talking about communion or the Lord's Supper in this passage. That's something he instituted with his disciples at another time, right before he went to the cross. I believe this is literally saying, you need to be part of me completely, as if you were consuming me. The tense of this passage in verses uh, 53 and 54, the, the Greek tense, and Greek has a lot more tenses than the past, present, and future that we have in English. And in that tense, it's known as the aorist tense, which literally is a tense that means it signifies a once and for all action. So Jesus saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood only once. Whereas in, with communion, we're invited to have communion, as it, the Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. Whereas this is talking about a once and for all action of receiving Christ and believing in him. As Jesus was speaking People were mulling this over. The scripture says they were grumbling. They were disputing among themselves. This, this caused an uproar in this little town. And they were confronted with a truth. And they had to respond. How will you respond when you're confronted with truth? 
If Jesus Christ was standing before you and saying something to you that you didn't fully understand, would you turn away and say, oh, I'm done with him now. I need to fully understand. I need Jesus to fit into my box and look a certain way and act a certain way. Or are we going to submit to his will and say, I'm going to follow you? In that passage in verses 64, it says, but there were some of you who do not believe. And it goes on in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was with his followers. Within a 24-hour period, they go from saying, Jesus is the king, he fed us a meal, and we want to set him up as our king. And then 24 hours later, they're turning their back and going, no, thank you, that's not for me. And then Jesus, with his disciples, is discussing this with them. And he asks them a very vulnerable question. He says in verse 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Now imagine Jesus was asking you that question. Do you, are you going to leave me as well? Are you going to turn your back and not believe? Or are you going to believe? Then Peter answers on behalf of the disciples in the most beautiful way. And he says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And here's the response. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is our bread of life. He is, as the scripture describes there, the son of man. You are the holy one of God. Literally, he's saying, you're the only way to salvation. And then he continues on and says, and have come to know. We, haven't, we don't just believe. Now we are experiencing. We've come to know your eternal life. And that's my prayer for every single person here, that you won't just know in your head, but you will come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or the Holy One of God, as the Apostle Peter says. That's our response. When we're confronted with truth and the truth is a truth that you need to know, how will you respond? Don't be like those who turn their back and no longer follow Jesus. We never hear about them again. We don't know what took place in the future for them, but we do know what took place with those disciples. And we know that when they follow Christ, they have life, not just for now, but for all eternity. And you can enjoy that yourself. It would be my greatest honor to show you out of the Bible at the end of the service how you can place your trust upon Christ as your Savior, how you can repent of your sin and place your trust upon Him. And from that, you can be saved. And within that, you may already know Christ is your Savior, and God may be bringing people to your heart and your mind and reminding you of people that are yet to come to know Him. Let me challenge you and encourage you with the words of Jesus and the attitude of Jesus. He just told the truth. He says, let me tell you the truth. Let God do the work, and let God do the changing and the saving.